Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Luke chapter 2, 41 through 42 is where we're going to be as we continue in our passage. Where is Jesus is the title. (laughs) Let me ask you, as you're turning to Luke chapter 2, And we're going to be looking at verse 41. What were you doing at the age of 12? What was your life like? But then just, what were you doing at the age of 12? What were some of the activities? What was your life like at the age of 12? Cleaning house? Oh my goodness. Okay, you're running track? Oh, you're in basketball? All right. And the mowing of the lawn, my goodness, you, you, your, your parents were taskmasters. Okay, all right then. Well, well what were you doing at the after? You know, I, I've got to learn, don't ask those questions out loud. Well, for most of us, we're playing with friends. We're exploring the neighborhood while growing more and more independent with not a care in the world. And it seems that the adventures, though, that the adventures and the carefree days of our childhood, at least for those of us that are over 30 and remember those days, are pretty much long gone, are we not? Children today are more protected than ever before. But I also suffer from more anxiety, worries, and other problems that you and I have never faced growing up. I can remember just exploring the neighborhood as far as we, our bikes could take us. And our bikes could go, I mean, we would be gone from dawn to dusk. We came home when, when mom and dad finally yelled out the door, time for supper. It's just, you know, playing baseball, basketball. It was just the carefree days. I didn't have a care in the world. According to the CDC, young teens today between the ages of 12 and 14 years of age might show more concern than about their body image, their looks, and their clothes. They're focusing more on themselves. They experience more moodiness. They show more interest in and influence by their peer groups. They're checking uh, every moment how many likes and how many uh, 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 tweets and likes and everything else they might have. But they also might have more ability for complex thought than you and I had when we were younger. They might be better able to express feelings through talking than those of that might be a little bit younger. And they also develop a stronger sense of what's right and what's wrong. Now today, Luke is going to give us a peek into a day or a few days in the life of Jesus as a 12-year-old. And I can guarantee you it is going to be much different than what you and I were like when we were 12. Last week, we considered the importance of Jesus' humanity. We think of Jesus as truly and fully human and truly and fully God. As Wayne Grumman writes, he says, Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And that was something we were talking about in, in uh, small groups this, just this past week. I encourage you, if you're interested in our small groups at Friday night at the Johnsons, please see me. I'd love to give you more information how you can participate in that. But the thought is, is did you know that Jesus will be uh, human forever? When we get to heaven, Jesus is still fully human and fully divine. And we made a note last week, just a, a thing that always blows my mind is, is you and I know that it says that all tears will wipe away. We'll have a new body and, and our infirmities will be wiped away and we'll be made new. But the only one in heaven that will have scars is Jesus. The nail prints in his hands. The, 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 the place where the, the sword or the spear pierced him. 
That's an amazing thought. Now, the importance of Jesus' humanity cannot be overstated. Scripture gives us several reasons that his humanity is important. It was through his humanity that Jesus was able to offer himself as our substitute sacrifice to earn our righteousness and to serve as a pattern how you and I are to live our lives and among many other benefits. Yet we must not forget that though he was divine, he was still human with all of the struggles and troubles that came with being human. We must not think of him as some type of superman or superhuman. Uh, the Ligonier Statement on Christology states this, We affirm that as truly man, Christ possesses all the natural limitations and common infirmities of human nature, and that he is like us in all respects except for Sin. And so last week we took some time to look at how Jesus grew and developed as any normal child would. He would have had to learn to be potty trained. He would learn how to walk, to talk, to, and to grow, to learn a language. The one who created language had to learn how to speak it and to write it. Yet as we contemplate and give thanks for the humanity of Christ, we can't help also but wonder about his divinity as well. You and I can ask questions as, was Jesus still omniscient? Was he all-knowing? Was he all-powerful? Was he still part of the Trinity or was it just a dynamic duel at that time? Was he still upholding all of creation as Colossians tells us? How did that work with Jesus was here and was temporal in space and time? He was at a specific place and a specific location. These are all good questions for us to ask, to ponder, and to explore. When we say that Jesus was truly human, we are also saying that he was truly divine. He never ceased to be the second person of the Trinity. Several weeks ago when I was back in Illinois, one of my nephews asked, the one who was just here in California during Christmas, many of you met him. He asked me a question that was really apropos knowing that I was coming to this in several weeks. He asked, when did, Jesus, or when did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? When did Jesus know that he was God? Or to put it in another way, what did Jesus know and when did he know it? That's the question. What did Jesus know and when did he knew, know it? Well, today Luke is going to answer that question to a small degree. Today's passage in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 52, gives us insight to Jesus' awareness and consciousness of his purpose and relationship with the Father. So with that, you're there in Luke chapter 2. Again, I always encourage you to bring your Bibles, just in case we have something like this that happens. But also, it's just good to be in God's Word so you can take notes and write and highlight. But let's start with verse 41. Now his parents, speaking of Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group that went a day, they, in the group, they went a day's journey. But they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And in verse 40, 45, we read, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So Father, give us wisdom. Thank you for this portion of scripture. Again, one that we don't think much of. It's only here in Luke's gospel. Uh, it gives us some insight. But Lord, help us to understand why is it here? 
How does this give us certainty about our faith, about the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus? Lord, how can this encourage us and challenge us? So help us as we do that work. Open up our hearts. Lord, I pray that we get past any distractions and the things that are changed today and just focus here on Jesus at the age of 12 who shares with us an insight of who and what who he was and what he was called to do. We thank you for this passage of scripture in your name. Amen. Now, once again, Luke points out the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in following the law of Moses and following the Jewish customs. All adult Jews were commanded to attend three annual or major annual feasts. We saw this when we looked at Exodus and Leviticus over these last few years. And they were to go to Jerusalem. This is where these, these feasts would take place. That was the Passover, uh, the Pentecost, and also the tabernacle, or called the Feast of Tabernacles. For many Jewish families, this would have been very difficult due to the dangers of traveling, as well as the expense of going to Jerusalem from wherever they were, the towns and villages they were. Our travel was not as, as easy. There was no Expedia.com. There was you know, none of these others that were there. They would be a, a danger from robbers, from thieves, uh, from animals, as well as the roads and things of that nature, though they were Roman and, and much better than, than maybe some that you might see here even today. It was still a difficult journey and an expensive one to take. To minimize those dangers and expense, many of them would just choose to go to one, which was typically Passover, which was the high day. And you and I understand uh, uh, the, the importance of Passover, as you and I consider Exodus and also in Leviticus, the, the, the day of atonement. Luke also gives us the earliest scene of Jesus other than his birth that's found in the Gospels. It's here that, that there are many apocryphal stories of Jesus' childhood. I, I gave you some of them last week. But this is the only one that's recorded in Scripture of what Jesus was doing between the, the, the ages of two of when we pretty much leave in Matthews to, to when we get to Jesus' public ministry when he's 30 years of age. Here we find the earliest recorded interaction between Jesus and his parents, Jesus and the religious leaders, as well as his first recorded words found in Scripture. This event serves to move the focus from the parents that we've been following Luke chapter 2, the, the parents, uh, Zechariah, and, and also the shepherds and the angel. And now it's moving to Jesus as, as Luke is preparing us to go now to the ministry of John the Baptist and then the very public ministry of Jesus as you and I continue in chapter 3 and 4. Now at the end of Passover, we see that the family is starting their journey home not knowing that Jesus was left behind. And at first uh, point or first glance, this would be easy for us to wonder what in the world was going through Joseph's and Mary's mind. How in the world did they not know that Jesus was not with them? He was only 12 years old. However, you and I not, must not import our 21st idea in the way that you and I see culture today and put it in scripture. That's very easy to do, but we got to stop from doing that. Now, to protect themselves from the various dangers and traveling in those days, it was common for a large group of people and family and acquaintances and people of the town to travel in a caravan. Now, not the Chrysler minivan that, uh, that I used to have, but in a caravan of, of the people. And so they would come together as a large group. 
It would make it easier to share the expensive. It probably included their extended family, as well as their neighbors and friends from Nazareth. And it's a small town. They all knew each other. So most likely they presumed that Jesus was with the other boys and girls or with some family member as he traveled off, as they had been doing this, as we saw, for, for 12 years together. So everything probably works together and they're thinking it's just another year. Jesus is here. He just must be along with some of his friends and family. Though eventually they come to a day's journey. Comes to traveling a day. However far they got, I'm not quite sure. Some believe it could have been 20, 25 miles. But they took a whole day's journey. They stop and you can imagine. They're grabbing out their sleeping bags. They're getting out the cooking utensils. They're getting ready to have dinner, maybe setting up the tent. And finally the word comes, where is Jesus? And maybe they start calling out, Jesus, Jesus. Maybe they're going to their friends after a while. They realize he's not coming. And this is odd because Jesus was a very obedient child. He's not someone that they had to worry much about. Maybe they're going to their family and saying, hey, have you seen Jesus? To their neighbors, to Jesus' friends, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't seen him all day. No, he hasn't been here. The little boy, the little girl saying, oh, we haven't seen Jesus. We haven't, played. we haven't seen him. You can imagine what this is going up. And in panic, they realize that he must not have traveled with them. He is missing. He's not there at the caravan at all. He's not playing with friends. He's not hiding. He's not around. He just is not with them. And so he must be at Jerusalem. Look with this at verse 46. In verse 46, we read that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke tells us that it took three days to find Jesus. One day traveling out, they realize he's gone. Took him another day to get back to Jerusalem. And then the next day looking for him. Now some of us may read that as three to five days uh, that they looked for him for three days. But I think it's more appropriate to think that, that, uh, that it was three days. Most likely when they got to Jerusalem on day, at the evening of day two, they got up the next morning and began to look at all the places. They looked, where did we lodge at? Where was the market? Where did we shop at? Oh yes, we also went to the temple. So they're just retracing their steps. They've been doing this for 12 years. There's a routine. So they're just going back. On day three, they eventually find him right at the temple. Here he is, a 12-year-old boy. But look what we see here is that he's sitting with the teachers. And look again at verse 46 and 47. And he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This is what we find a 12-year-old doing. That's what I asked. What were you doing? What was life like when you were at 12? Most likely you did not stay behind and leave your parents so you can spend a little more time with your sixth grade teacher. Or sitting in the teacher's lounge listening and asking questions. Not only that, but it says that the teachers were amazed and astonished at his insight. Even at this young age, Jesus was amazing the teachers with his knowledge and his understanding of the Torah, the word of God. You and I, uh, when we continue through Luke, we'll see that this was always response. He speaks as one or teaches as one who has authority. They were amazed at his words. They were astonished at his answers and no one could give him an answer to his questions because they were so insightful and cutting to the heart. 
Now, this passage is not saying that Jesus was teaching. Many times this is kind of given that Jesus was actually setting and he was teaching them. But no, we're here and he's listening and he's asking, asking questions. He's interacting with them. These men could not believe that this young man could be so wise. I love what John, uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he says, The boy was utterly respectful, taking the role of a student. Being even at that young age, his questions, though, showed a wisdom that put the teachers to shame. And that kind of goes back to verse 39 and 40 that we read last week. And that he grew in wisdom, the skill of godly living, the understanding of a Torah. He was one of those precocious children. Maybe I can't think of the word now that almost like a savant in which he understood things that even they had not yet comprehended or even considered. It is noteworthy to point out here that these teachers who are amazed at his his understanding and his answers would one day probably most likely be part of the crowd that would shout crucify him, crucify him. As I was preparing this part, I actually wondered, I wondered if they remembered Jesus from when he was 12. I wonder if they made that correlation. Now I want to take a moment before we go on because many times we just read scripture and we just go through a narrative. But I want you to take a moment to pause here and consider the emotion that, that's in this passage. Specifically Mary and Joseph. Could you imagine the relief they experienced when they finally found him? Now, Em, I did not realize you were going to be in here, so I'm going to tell a story on you. Back when we lived in Rockford, Emily was about two years old, maybe three, but I think she's around two. And all of a sudden, Dawn was at that time was not working. She was at home or maybe she was working in the evening. But I was working at a place called Sunstreet and I was working in a kind of a copier printer room. And, and I was working and that day I happened to be the only one in there. Now, this print and copy room was a busy place. And we were just constantly people coming in, needing things printed, needing things copied, uh, bound, books bound together. So it was a pretty uh, ongoing uh, thing that we would do there. And all of a sudden I get a call and it's Dawn and she's just sobbing. She's beside herself. I couldn't really understand what she was saying. But I finally, after saying, what are you, what's going on, Dawn? Is everything okay? Jacob and Brandon are at school. She finally blurts out the word or I could understand her. Emily is missing. Now, Emily's two years old. We had just kind of moved into this kind of new neighborhood. And these neighborhoods, they don't have sidewalks. They don't have lights and things of that nature. It's, it's just pretty kind of almost kind of a rule in a city setting. But she says, I can't find Emily. Okay, so what am I doing here? So I'm surrounded by work. I'm in work mode. So I just want to solve her problem so I can get back to what's going on. But as talking to her, well, did you look upstairs? We had a three-story house at the time. Did you look upstairs? Did you look downstairs? Did you look in the basement? Did you, you sure you checked her room? Did you check underneath her room? Did you, is she outside? Is she out in the garage? And she's just blubbering. And then she says the word that every man doesn't want to hear is, can you come home? I need you home right now. Now, I'm, I'm only probably 15 minutes from work. I'm not very far at all. But as I'm looking at this, and of course, I'm thinking of my daughter. Where could she be? But I'm looking and seeing just, there's just nothing. My tables are full. There is no one else to pass my work on. And I had, my boss was gone. That was part of the problem too, is I had no one to call and say, hey, I need to leave work. And so eventually one uh, coworker did walk in who doesn't do what I do. So he's not able to relieve me. I said, man, I, I, he goes, I think you just need to go. 
And so I'm all upset and worried about it. And so finally I called to go to call Dawn to say, you know, I'm ready to come home. I'm making it. And just then she, I think she calls me and says, I found her. And she's still kind of sobbing. But now that sobbing is kind of that relief, you know, that breathing. <sighs> I found her. Where was she? Well, she walked to our neighbor's house. She had made a, her and a, an older lady that lived next door named Opal, they had made a connection. And Emily just wanted to go over there, probably looking for cookies or something of that nature. But you can imagine uh, that the emotion and the relief at finding your child. And I, I remember that day, and we have another instance I don't want to go into. We had another one with a little girl named Leah that was maybe just a little bit older than Emily, and it was at a park. We were all camping as a church at a park. And all of a sudden, it was starting to get dusk, and all of a sudden, her mother goes, where's Leah? And so we're looking at all the, is she with you? She, you know, she, her and Jake would play, and she had an older sister. We couldn't find her. So same thing, now we're going through this park, asking everyone if they've seen this little, this little girl. It took forever. And I just remember Tammy when she finally found her. That relief. That's what I'm talking about. So we got to remember that there are two anxious people here, Mary and Joseph. And so that helps us to understand this interaction she's about to have with Jesus. Like many parents today, they responded at astonishment of what they were witnessing. Their son is okay, but he's in the last place that they expected. Not only is he safe, but he's sitting among teachers, talking with them, listening, and they, they're probably just trying to put this all in and say, what in the world is going on? But they also give him a little bit of rebuke, and that's found in verse 48. And when his parents saw him sitting there with the teachers, they were astonished. And the mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Think of that. Consider that. We'll talk about that in a second. Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, I imagine the way she said that was probably not as calm as what I just spoken there. It'd be interesting to hear the inflection of her voice, the emotion. You and all can I can relate to this Reaction. Probably all of you have had parents have had moments where, where is Timmy, Daniel, Isabel, you know, Mackenzie? Where, where are they? They just got out of reach. This is a mother's frustration, anger, and worry all coming out. Why have you treated us so? We also might take time to consider that up to this point, Jesus had not given them an opportunity to worry. He had not been a rebellious, argumentative, or dismissive of his parents in any way. We might chalk this up to a young man feeling his oats or spreading his wings as he's getting closer to maturity, as he's a little bit older. But to any parent, this was a serious breach of obedience. This was a no-no. He's gone. No-no, by the way, is the Greek word for, for what's happening here. As we read here, Mary believes that, listen here, Mary believes that Jesus' action is a direct attack against her. And isn't that what we, and parent, our parent, we as parents do when our, our children rebel or children are disobedient? Why are you treating me this way? What is wrong with you? What is she doing? She's, she's putting the, the emphasis is you have wronged us. Our anger, our frustration, she's saying, is proper. You have a debt. You owe me. You should not have 
done this. She points out in her frustration that they have been looking for him. And that phrase that they were great at stress actually evokes the emotion of anxiety and suffering. This is a word that, that would be someone who's in great distress because of, of much suffering and pain. We might say today that they were beside themselves and so they, they, they focused their energy and their anger on Jesus. And you and I might say, well, yes, yeah. I mean, that's what I would be doing as well. I'm relieved that he's safe, but man, it took us three days. We were worried. If Jesus' actions so far had not caused them some great distress, some anger, some frustration, and it causing us to wonder what's going on, his response to them is even more startling. Look at verse 49. Remember, why have you treated us this way? We've been searching for you for three days. Look what Jesus says to them. Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, take a moment and reread his response and consider what Jesus is saying there. Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know this is where I would be? Instead of exhibiting repentance and confession, as you would expect a young boy to do. I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. I wasn't thinking. You know, whatever excuses you think might be appropriate. Jesus doubles down by pointing out that they are the ones at fault. Now, how as you as parents do you like that? Well, you made me do it. You know, would you love your 12-year-old child to say that to you? It seems that Jesus is truly baffled at their great distress and emotion and worry. He points out their error when not his own, when he says, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? There almost be, seems to be a gentle rebuke in that shocking question. In a sense, he's asked them, why are you looking for me among your family and among friends? Why are you surprised that I am not in the caravan or astonished that I'm in the temple sitting here among these men? This actually should have been the very first place that you should have looked for me. Let me ask you. How would you have responded to that type of question and statement from your child? Probably not well. I'm reminded of that meme, that Batman, that of uh, that meme of Batman slapping Robin. And I kind of imagine that. I almost put that up on the screen, but probably a good thing I didn't. However, as we read verse 50, we're going to skip a few verses, go down to 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Luke, in writing to Theophilus, remember this is a letter that's written to Theophilus. And in here he tells, he writes to Theophilus, he's recording Mary's confession that she and Joseph were not sure what to make of Jesus' response to them. Yes, they knew that he was special and a unique child that he was to be the Messiah, that he was the Redeemer, and yet God, yet after 12 years of raising him, they still were not sure of who he was and what his future held. In the last part of verse 51, we read that his mother treasured up these things in her heart. She could not understand the scenario that they just lived. And you and I, after reading this, might say, yeah, I don't think I quite understand as well 
is what this portion, this does not look good on Jesus. Not only does he cause his parents much stress, but then he winds up gently rebuking them and saying, well, it's all your fault. So how does this give you and I certainty about the life of Christ and his ministry and who he was? And that's what you and I need to do. We need to consider what this passage is teaching us. What is some spiritual truths that are found here? <clears throat> what is Luke wanting us to be certain of? Now, as Luke gives us a word picture into one of the experiences on the life of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, he is sharing two important truths that you and I must acknowledge, must accept, and be assured of. Again, we're going to look at two spiritual truths this morning that this passage tells us that you and I must acknowledge, see that it's there, we must accept it as its truth, and we must be assured of what we're seeing. First, these are not on the, on the, bullet, on the screen, but first, you and, us must, you and I must learn that at least by the age of 12, by the age of 12, Jesus knew, understood, and accepted that he was the Son of God, that he was the second person of the Trinity. This answers the question of what did Jesus know and when did he know it? We see at least by the age of 12, he had come into that understanding. We see this in the question that also makes that statement. When Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There is there an answer to the clue or, or to the question that many of us have been asking. In that simple statement, we see two ways in which Jesus understood his identity as the son of God. First, Jesus identified his relationship with God as his father. Now, this becomes clear as you and I regard how Jesus answers Mary's protest. Son, why have you treated us so? Instead of confessing any wrongdoing and confirming their sense of anger and distress, Jesus points out that Yahweh is his father, not Joseph. Now, this is not to be meant to belittle Joseph or deny his authority over Jesus as his adopted father and adopted son. Rather, it's to point out that Jesus knew whose authority was preeminent. God the Father is over uh, Joseph, my adopted father. The editors, the editors of the most newer translations, probably that you have there, make this easier to see. As you'll see, as they capitalize Father when Jesus says it, but when Mary says, your father and I have been looking, it's a small f. That's to help us understand the correlation. They're pitting the two. They're contrasting the two. Turn, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1.1, 1, 1, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 1.1. 1, 1. Near the back of the Bible, Revelation, then start moving your way backwards. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, the Holy Spirit is pointing out the divinity, the person of Christ as the Son of God. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. He points this out long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, speaking of Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, so on and so forth. But in verse 2, he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through him who also created the world. We see that Jesus was there and created the world. Verse 3, this is the verse I want you to get. And you may want to underline this in your scripture. I think this is a good phrase to memorize. 
says he, speaking of Jesus, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hence why I asked, does Jesus still uphold the world as he is a 12-year-old boy? When he was two, when he had his birth. Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul writes also in Colossians chapter 1, if you're quick, you can go there, but Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he says, speaking of Jesus, that he again is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible representation, hence why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have not seen me, you have not seen the Father. So he says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. The visible, the invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions, speaking of the political nature or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God Himself. It goes on to say in verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul Tripp remarks that the power of the incarnation is that it makes the presence and the glory of God visible. Remember in the eight days before, the only way to see God was through the fire of a burning bush through the fire that led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years or the cloud by day the only way to see see God was when when the, his glory came down and was on the tabernacle and then in the, ta- in the in the temple the only way to see the glory of God was to see it on Moses face which he would have to hide because the people were fearful it was through the thunders and the lightnings at the mountain of Mount Sinai and the people were led to fear. Even the visions of those who went to heaven, say Jeremiah, or, um, Isaiah and Jacob and others, did not picture God the Father. No one has seen him. For there is nothing. He would blind us to the core. His glory is too much. But yet here's what you and I have to understand. Is that we can see Jesus. Now you and I can't see him in the flesh. One day we will. But those who walked among them saw God himself. From the moment of his birth to his two-year-old to now when he's 12. He was fully God and fully man. Yes, Jesus was truly, full, truly and fully human, but he was also truly and fully divine. We must understand that. The early church struggled with this concept. And they eventually had to bond together to fight against several wrong teachings about who Christ was. Some believe that Jesus had a human body. So yes, it could die. It could be beaten. But yet he had a divine mind. But that's an error. Some would say, well, Jesus was two persons with two loosely connected natures. I'm not sure how that all works out, but that was one of the ancient beliefs. And there's many others. And here's one that's kind of um, apropos or many believe today is that Jesus surrendered certain divine attributes in order to live with the constraints of humanity in the incarnation. 
So that comes from when we look at Philippians and we say that he emptied himself. We say, well, God surrendered his divinity. So he was not omniscient. He was not all powerful. He did not have all of those things as God. But yet you and I need to realize that that's actually what would be called a heresy. He did not surrender. So we understand what people are trying to say. So we have to say that that surrendered is not the proper tomb. When it says that he emptied himself, it did not mean that he gave up those things. At age 12, he was holding the world in motion. Creation was still being upheld by his hand as an unconscious baby. I say that as a baby who does not know what's going on. He at all times was divine. R. Lucas Stamps and Brandon Smith writes that Jesus in his incarnation took on the limitations of human flesh that he might learn obedience, grow in wisdom, and undo the work of Adam. He's the second Adam. He's going to do what Adam could not. The person of Jesus was truly and fully Man, he was human, but listen to this, without ceasing to be truly and fully God at the same time. The second thing you and I learn from that sentence is that Jesus knew and was committed to his purpose and to his mission. Scripture informs us that the plan of redemption was set before time began. Jesus knew exactly what his role would be to learn and to suffer through obedience to the Father the first person of the Trinity. He knew that it was his duty to obey God first rather than man. He understood that at times that it, this would put him at odds with, um, with other proper and uh, earthly authority. And though it may be hard for you and I to fully understand his rightful place at that moment was not to be in the caravan, but it was to be in the temple. Jesus was at the right place at the right time, according to the will of the Father. Not according to the will and desires of his earthly parents, but he was at the right place. Hence his surprise. Why are you surprised that I'm not here? Everything that Mary and Joseph have experienced, they should by now have ex expected Jesus to be at the temple. Now, you and I cannot understand that in our human minds, but yet there is a truth there. One pastor notes that this answer reveals that even at a young age, Jesus had a clear consciousness of his identity and his mission. His identity was as the son of God who his father was. And it was also, this is where I am to be. I have a mission. I have a purpose. And at this moment, it is here speaking, listening, and interacting with these teachers. Secondly, so firstly, we had to understand that by the age of 12, Jesus understood who he was. Number two, major point. I know we did two small subpoints there for a moment. But here's the second one, and this is so important. You and I must acknowledge that Jesus is fully divine and that he was truly and fully human with the limitations of human form. You and I, looking at this portion of Scripture, must be certain of this fact. Jesus was without sin. Jesus was without sin. Now, you and I look at this, the first thing, and you and I read it, and we almost put ourselves in Mary and Joseph's uh, shoes. 
and we can imagine our children being in Jesus' shoes, we would say, you are in the wrong. That's what Mary says. Why have you done this to us? That's an accusation. So you and I reading this might say, wait a second, didn't Jesus sin? Was he not disobedient as a 12-year-old? Should he not been with his parents? But what we're seeing in the scripture is saying, Jesus says, no, I'm right where I'm supposed to be, obeying who I'm supposed to be obeying. You and I must not make the mistake thinking that this passage is teaching us that Jesus was disobedient to his parents. Luke is writing to give Christians certainty about the life and ministry of Jesus. He's not trying to confuse them or make them certain that Jesus was a sinner. The one who wrote the fifth commandment, listen to this, the one who wrote the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, obeyed the fifth commandment perfectly at all times even right here when he was 12 years of age. Though it can be difficult for us to see that in this encounter, we must acknowledge and accept and be ensured when scripture informs us that you and I do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect has been tempted, but yet is without sin. Guys, do we have the, do we have the slides now? Can you go to 2 Corinthians 3 verses there? I like, yeah, thank you very much. Look at this portion of scriptures. You and I must be certain of this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew what? No sin. In John or Peter, it says in him, there was no deceit. And in 1 John, and in him, speaking of Jesus, there is no sin. We must understand this. It says in Hebrews 5, although he was a son, humanly speaking, he learned obedience through what he suffered, speaking of also his divinity, and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation. This is important for you and I to understand and acknowledge for if Jesus sinned, even at the age of 12, if you and I think, well, there was this one moment where he was dismissive, disobedient, and denying the authority of his parents, if we say at this one moment he had sinned, then he ceases to be that perfect substitutional sacrifice that we spoke of last week. He could not have earned our righteousness. He could not have been our mediator between God and us. He could not be accepted by the Father. He himself would have needed a Savior. He would cease to be God. This is very difficult for you and I to grasp. This is a difficult portion of Scripture. But the truths here are very important spiritual truth. Jesus was without sin. Look at verse 51 of Luke chapter 2. Are you back there? Luke chapter 2 verse 51. After this scenario, after he explains what he was doing and who he was, it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was what? Submissive to them. Jesus lived out the command written in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Jesus was without sin even in this scenario. Now look with me verse 52. Because I want to bring this to a close. And we now see a book. A book ends here with verse 40. In verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. And in favor with God 
and man. Again, in verse 40, Luke writes to Theophilus that Jesus matured as he grew into manhood. Pastor John MacArthur, writing on this, verse 52, writes this, Jesus did not cease being God or divest himself of divine attributes in order to become man. So again, when it says that he emptied himself, he did not divest himself of all of his authority and who he was. Rather, he took on a human nature. That's an addition, not a subtraction. And he submitted to the use of his divine attributes to the will of the Father. And I think uh, you had it right, Landon, is that he did and obeyed God and used his divine gifts when the Father said, it is time. Therefore, there were times when he was omniscient or his, that when his omniscient was on display. And there was other times it was veiled by his humanity. <coughs> Excuse me, give me an example. Jesus says, I do not know when I'm returning. Only the Father knows. Does that mean that he truly didn't know in his divinity? Yes. But at that time, he veiled it. Okay? He did not subtract it. He could not, it's not like he could not attain it. He just, he veiled it. Christ was therefore subject to the normal process of human growth, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and even socially. I like how John, pa uh, John Piper summarizes this passage. He says, So it seems to me that the main teaching of this passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over even the closest family ties. He must follow his calling even if it brings pain and understanding. Because let me say, their pain and, their, and then their, their, their anger was justified to a point. We can understand that. In this way, Luke is setting the stage for the adult ministry of the Son of God. So for you and I, as we understand that, how do you now and I, how do we apply this? How does this bring a certainty? Well, just as a side note, John Piper points out four things that you can see from Jesus. One is Jesus sought out teachers and he sat in their midst. He listened to them. He asked questions and he gave answers. You and I, here's the thing, is you and I need to try to develop the skill, not try, you and I need, need to develop the habit and the skill of listening and answering questions when it comes to the Word of God. Part of growing in, our, in Christ and our sanctification is that we learn more about God's Word and about God. We learn how to interact with other Christians and how to share the gospel. As a body of believers, you and I should encourage and teach another to do so. So I'd encourage you, in, in your interactions, social interactions with each other. I know we want to talk about the coronavirus. We want to talk about politics. We want to talk about things we like and things we dislike. But let's talk about God's word together. When we're sitting, just drinking coffee. When we're just sitting together and bowling. When we're out running as much as I'm gasping, do what you can. Is at all times we ought to be interacting, learning and teaching. Listening and asking questions. At the same time, and here's what comes really difficult. At the same time, we need to understand that our desire and commitment to obey God does not mean that we negate our human responsibility to obey our earthly authorities, except when they compromise the gospel or stand against God's word. Yet at the same time, we need to realize that God is going to call us into things, command us to do things, that will bring us into opposition with those we love and those we care about. 
And those are difficult things and difficult times. And so you need to pray that God will give you wisdom and discernment of how to interact when those happen. Above all else, you and I should be grateful and full of worship of the one who came and took upon himself the limitations of humanity in order that he might redeem and ransom us uh, from our sin. I think, do we have that last closing verse up there? I just want to close with this. Revelation 4.11. Thank you, gentlemen. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let us praise the one who came and took on humanity that we may have eternity. There we head bowed, every head closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up. I just want to thank you so much to be, for being here, but I want to encourage you. Hold fast to the truth that Jesus was fully and truly human, yet at the same time truly and fully God. If only we confess those two things, can we have eternal life. John tells us that we must confess that Jesus came in the flesh and that we also must confess that he is the Son of God. To say anything else is to be an antichrist. So I encourage you today, accept that truth. You may not understand it. You may not be able to explain it fully, but we must understand that Jesus is divine and he is the sinless substitute on our behalf. May God be glorified. Father, make us sufficient for these things to understand. These things can be difficult. They can be hard. They can, sometimes we're embarrassed of them because we don't want to share them with our friends because it seems like we're making some strange uh, statement. But Lord, help us as we read scripture to hold these truths that you are divine, and that you're without sin. And Father, that makes you capable of being our savior. Thank you so much. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.